As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everyone and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry and on today's show we've got some USMNT chat for you. Normally on Tuesdays myself and Taylor Rockwell talk about some of the Americans that were in action over the weekend but today is going to be something just a bit different. Today I'm joined by a man that loves beards, bills and Battlestar Galactica and who also loves answering USMNT centric listener questions. It's Adam Snavely. Adam I know you love the bills and I know you have a beard. I don't really know if you like Battlestar Galactica. Either way, thanks for coming on the show to talk about soccer and listen to my very mediocre references to the office. That's right. It's another Total Soccer Show episode featuring Joe in cleats and Snaves in beard. Uh, (laughs) I have never actually watched Battlestar Galactica. Um, Battlestar Galactica seems to be uh, a very specific age of nerd type of thing. Um, Not to... (laughs) Not to call out any of you Battlestar Galactica fans out there, but uh, it, it was relatively, I think, before my time of uh, I'm I'm this is something that's in the public conscious and in, in any sort of way. But I am glad to be here. I am happy to be talking once again about soccer with you, Joe, and any and all tangents that we might get on, because I do love me a good tangent. The tangents are going to be real. I wasn't expecting you to go that deep into Battlestar Galactic. I'm kind of impressed that you could go that far. I am very thankful, Adam, for you coming on the show today to answer some of these questions with me. Like I said in the intro, Tuesdays is normally Americans in Action Day. Taylor's out on vacation, so that didn't make as much sense this week. But we've got Adam coming in, stepping up, pinch hitting what a guy, folks. And we're going to dive into a bunch of questions that you all submitted, some through the Total Soccer Show website, some through Twitter in just a minute. But first, Adam, I kind of wanted to start out this show with some general U.S. men's national team thoughts and feelings. This is a time where we can share our USMNT-centric emotions, maybe, or at least I want to get your thoughts on some of this stuff because Taylor and I have kind of talked about it to death. But for you, having watched those three World Cup qualifiers in September, thinking about the next window that's coming up starting next week, just about nine days from now, how are you feeling about the USMNT right now after September? Because it was not the the easiest or strongest or simplest of starts. 
Yeah, I think there was definitely a, something of a roller coaster ride of emotions that most U.S. fans went through watching the three games that they did play uh, first uh, against El Salvador, then against Canada, and then finally finishing up with the big win against Honduras. And uh, when you asked me kind of to figure out what my my overall thoughts were about those three games before we did the episode. That's a little pull behind the curtain for all of you people that are listening. <laughs> Sometimes we actually talk about these questions before we record. So I kind of came to the conclusion that I'm more or less in the same place I was before the September games where I still think that there's plenty to be concerned about, but I'm also still cautiously optimistic and it's completely in a different way than I think it was before the games but on the whole it's all kind of coalesced into relatively the same feelings i can't say that i completely liked what i saw from the u.s over the september games and i'm hoping that most of the things that i didn't like were some personnel issues on the day rather than things that are going to be deep systemic issues that are going to sink our world cup hopes (laughs) over over the course of the next year or year and a half or, or whatever I don't, I don't know if that is the case or not. I suppose that we will see in the next window and then in the coming windows after that. I thought the first two games were okay in terms of limiting really good opposition chances and that the chances that were allowed in those games were pretty clear player errors rather than system errors. But the system in the first couple games is also pretty slow. Uh, a little bit anemic on the attacking side and kind of easily stymied by teams that just kind of sat in and and dared the U.S. to attack them. Um, I think I was probably most disappointed by the performances of Josh Sargent and John Brooks, um, who I thought were going to be extremely important in terms of qualifying. Sargent in particular had kind of a catastrophic window in terms of his indecision in the final third and trying to figure out what to do with the ball at his feet there. Um, I think that there's a lot of talk about Josh Sargent and a lot of arguments to be had at a different point in time. I just think, I just think (laughs) that overall it was disappointing and that pretty much everybody would have to agree that it was a disappointing uh, window from him. Uh, We've also, we've also seen some other players that I, I thought were, some some not great in the window, some very good in the window uh, that subsequently have, have dipped a little bit. Um, I think in the last couple of weeks in MLS, Matt Turner has been letting some shots by that he shouldn't be letting by. Uh, I think that after uh, the kind of – after a bit of playing out of position, relatively speaking, for James Sands against Honduras, he – hasn't been great again in MLS over the yeah. last couple of weeks. And and we also have injuries to Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna that we're talking about. So there's plenty to be concerned about. On the other hand, we have a kid who could be a really, really great striker. Hmm. And having a really great striker can cover a multitude of sins. Um, <laughs> it, it is It is something that can cover up a lot of bad. And I think that we saw the beginnings of that with Ricardo Pepe against Honduras. So the coming window, uh, which happens also to be one of the, one of the windows that I think has uh, one of the easiest degrees of difficulty for a set of matches in the U S in terms of these three match windows that we're, that we're going to, I think the next one is one of the easiest over the three matches. Um, So we have a relatively simple window. We're still tied for second on points in qualifying after three games. So I think I feel 
although not in the same way, but kind of in the same feeling, I feel much the same as I did before the first set of qualifiers. Cautiously optimistic. I'm still a bit unsure uh, of our quality and depth in some situations. Still a little bit unsure of the system Burhalter is trying to implement game to game, but still optimistic. And let's let's touch on one of those things that you mentioned as being one of the primary reasons for optimism. And it comes in the form of our first listener question. We've got a few to get to today. This one comes from Mark Nicholson. What additional evidence do we need to confirm that Pepe is, in fact, the striker that was promised? And Adam, before we maybe dive into that question, I did want to ask, it seems like you have a lot of Pepe stock. How much Pepe stock do you do you really have? Because I think I have a lot and I think most people out there have a lot. I mean, I don't have a tattoo like the FC Dallas uh, <laughs> social media Eddie. person. Eddie. <laughs> um, but I, I I like to think that I'm shoveling coal on El Tren at, at the current moment. I have gotcha. a whole lot of Ricardo Pepe stock. I think that he is pretty much as close to a complete striker as we've got in the pool at the moment. He is a person who can hold the ball up and, and create dangerous counterattacking opportunities. Like we saw him do against Honduras. He's also a person who is, is tall has a, is a big body that he is still growing into and he can use his head, uh, which we also saw against Honduras. And he's somebody who, which I think is is a particular a particular point of struggle for several U.S. strikers that we've seen over the years. He's got a little bit of the Chris Wondolowski disappear from your defenders in the box movement about him. Yeah. He has a, a lot of intelligence in his off ball movement and how to get away from defenders and into dangerous spaces, uh, particularly with FC Dallas moving off of uh, Jesus Ferreira as he is just kind of going wherever uh, the, the game is taking him. Um, and, I, and I think that's really, really important. Uh, so, so yeah, I have a bunch of peppy stock at this point in time. I love the image of you just shoveling coal onto that train. That's, that's a beautiful uh, picture. I'm a coal I think- shoveler, baby. <laughs> I, I think I'm with you on a lot of that stuff. Pepe is – Taylor asked me this question when when the Pepe talk was kind of first heating up from a USMNT perspective. I think Pepe is like a 9 out of 10 prospect. I think he's a, I think he's an elite level prospect in terms of the global striker age group being a younger player. I think he's he's got tons of potential. And like you're saying, Adam, he has a lot of those tools right now. His movement in the box is very good. Uh, I love that you pointed that out. He, he can hold up the ball, although I would argue he's still not – entirely consistent at doing that yet. If you go back through and watch the first half against Honduras, I think he got bodied a lot and you can see that he's still growing into that frame. So getting to Mark's question, for me, the additional evidence I need is just time, right? I I don't want to fall into the same trap that I think I fall into and I, I know a lot of other folks out there fall into it as well, of anointing someone before we've seen enough of them. There's There's some level of nuance here, I think, because Pepe has the tools to become an elite level striker, but I don't know that he's he's at that consistent level yet. We've only seen him play one time with the national team. And for me, before I'm willing to say that he's the striker that was promised, I just <laughs> I just need to see more of that stuff, right? Is that is that unreasonable? No, absolutely not. And and the word you said, uh, you said the word consistent, and that is another word that I also had down is oh, we're looking for consistency over time because Pepe has had a monster year in MLS already so far uh, when we're whatever, like two thirds of the way through the MLS season yeah. or something like that. Two thirds, three fourths, some, some, some fraction, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, 
and and we have seen him now play for the U.S. and and he looked really really good. And obviously, was really really important and sparked a big win for the U.S. against Honduras. But being kind of the consistent professional is a little bit different. And so when we're talking about is Pepe the striker that was promised, which for a long time, Josh Sargent was the striker that was promised. And I think that we saw a lot of things in Josh Sargent when he was kind of breaking through with the youth national teams. Uh, and I think of particularly that U20 cut world cup that he went to when he was still a U17 and he just walked into the team and started scoring goals and scoring goals in really impressive ways. And, and we thought that, I thought personally that Josh Sargent was a, a can't miss prospect and he was going to light the world on fire. And that hasn't quite happened, you know, and, and the reasons for that are, are complex and, and multitude and, and all that stuff. But at the base level, we're not getting consistently good attacking performances out of Josh Sargent. We'll see him do some good things in a game a lot of the time. And he's the type of player that he's always going to be a coach's favorite because he's always even if he's having a bad game, he's never going to stop running. He's always going to keep putting pressure and do little things that coaches love to see. And that's going to serve him well in terms of whatever professional team that he is on. That's something that he is always going to bring. On the other hand, we haven't seen the consistency from him. And that has really hampered his professional growth. I have to say, if, if you look at the way that he has played over the course of the last year or so, uh, and, and some of that may or may not be his fault, but we haven't seen it. And that's the bottom line. If Pepe is the striker that was promised, we have to start, we have to see that consistency. It's not enough to just have a good six months in MLS. We need more than that. And then beyond that, obviously there is the idea that you also have to take a step up in the club because that's probably something in his near future may or may not be Ajax, as was recently reported that they have been scouting him uh, and they have, I, I, I believe I the, read the report, right? That they had actually made contact with his, with his group of people. So yeah, my two big things right now, if we want to call Pepe the chosen one, basically are, does he continue to play at this consistently high level? Is this now what we're seeing just his floor and not his ceiling? And when he takes a step up, because it seems inevitable that he's going to take a step up in terms of the league he goes to, the prestige of the team that he's playing for. When he takes that step up, does he actually take the step up or does he flounder a little bit? Because I thought a few players around Ricardo Pepe's age would for sure make the next up when they went to Europe and they did not. The timing of that next move, I think, is going to be fascinating. And Matt Doyle was talking about this on Extra Time and tweeted out a thread about it, a really good thread yesterday, I believe, about you know maybe maybe the timing for Pepe would be better to move after the World Cup just because when you do make a move to a bigger European club, it's exciting, yes, but a lot of those players don't go in and make an immediate impact. And do you want, from a USMNT perspective at least, do you want Pepe sitting on the bench at Ajax or sitting on the bench at Dortmund leading up to a World Cup year where the U.S. is hopefully going to be competing in that massive tournament? Maybe you don't, right? Maybe that's not the best thing for Pepe right now. I don't know exactly where I fall 
I think I'm sitting on the fence right now, and I'm pretty comfortable on that fence. But it is an interesting point, Adam, and I appreciate that you bring that up. So it, it does – it just needs to be more. We need more time. I think I think the U.S. is at a point right now where they don't have to anoint every talented young player to being the blank position that was promised, right? It's exciting to see these guys come up. It, it's especially exciting to see a guy like Pepe come up in a position of need. But I think time is the most important part here for me. Adam, let's hit one more question before we toss into a break here in just a moment. This one is from Matt Koss. What are your predictions for Michael Bradley's future? Coach, analyst, simply retire? I've got a few thoughts on this one, Adam, but I want to turn it to you first. What is, what's going to happen with Michael Bradley post-soccer playing? I, I think that Michael Bradley probably eventually gets into coaching or some sort of soccer related gig. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if I see Michael Bradley as a TV analyst somewhere per se, um, but I could see him if, if not a coach, Michael Bradley popping up as a front office person for hmm. uh, a team somewhere that, that sort of thing um, or, or some sort of director uh, director of football, technical director, whatever, um, <laughs> that, that type of deal. Mostly, I think that whatever happens after Michael Bradley's retirement, I fully expect Michael Bradley to do the Clint Dempsey and just go away for a while. Um, and I think the reasons are slightly different um, between the two of those players, but I kind of expect Michael Bradley to just avoid the public eye when he is first starting out his retirement. Um, mostly, mostly due to the hate that he has received over the the back half of his career from a lot of us fans. Um, there's a lot of people that are never going to forgive him uh, for being the guy that came back to MLS from Roma uh, for being on the field in Cuba. Uh, despite the fact that he is not, he was not Jorge Villafania, who wasn't closing down his man, who would go on to score a worldly, or and also he was not Omar Gonzalez scoring an all-timer own goal in that game. Um, the guy gave up a not insignificant portion of his life for the United States men's national team, and there's a lot of people that just kind of hate him for it. So I expect him to just take it easy and lay low for a good while. We have almost identical thoughts on this question, Adam, and we did not compare notes. I think after retirement, he's going to step away for a while at least, and then I do think he'll come back. Like you're saying, coaching feels like a pretty good fit, and I, I think he likes the game and really loves the game, and I can see him making an impact in that particular role. I also don't really see him as an analyst because in the brief moments that I've interacted with him, and this is a, a very small sample of Michael Bradley's interactions with other people outside of his own family and team, his personality just doesn't strike me as a TV personality. But I will say we're seeing networks like CBS take more risks and do some interesting things with their studio coverage. So it could work. What I really want, though, Adam, I, and I, I really want this to happen, is I want Michael Bradley and Will Trapp to start a podcast, and I want them to call it The Long Diagonal. Is oh, that too God. much to ask for? <laughs> a Bradley-Will Trapp podcast called The Long Diagonal. I would listen to that all day, every day, and I cannot be alone. That, I mean, that's just, that's too good. Like, I, I know I came up with that idea, and this is not actually going to happen, but I want it so bad, Snaves. I, I... 
I applaud your your naming convention. Um, I don't think I would listen to the podcast, but I would Boo. respect. I would respect the heck out of them for doing it if if they did it. Ah, uh, you're no fun. That's fine. That that probably wouldn't happen, and I don't. <laughs> I don't think they would be the most enjoyable and entertaining podcast hosting duo. But for the memes, Adam, for the memes. I mean, hey, we let Paul and Sam host a podcast, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to leave that one. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Paul and Sam do a great job, and I enjoy editing their shows. Um, Good job, okay, Paul and Sam. Let's take, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment to answer more of your wonderful listener questions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Adam is here. I am here. And our next question is here. It's from Kaz Tidrick. What is the obsession with playing Serginho Dest on the left? Is it due to a lack of quality on the left and overabundance on the right? What's going on, says Kaz Adam, what's up with this Serginho Dest at left back thing? Because I'll note, it's not just happening with country. It's also happening with club. I I think I'm more confused at this uh, obsession with people being worried that Dest can't play on the left. And that that's, <laughs> you know, like that, that oh, Dest is, I, I think, here's here's my, my theory. I think that initially when we started getting to nations league stuff and then the first obviously the first game of the gold cup i think that we saw some we saw some bad defensive moments from Serginho dest we we saw some some stuff that we didn't like and i think that a lot of people were trying to reassure themselves a little bit and saying well he's being played on the left it's not his natural position um and then he got switched over to the right and we still saw some bad defensive moments um so I I think that the obsession with playing Dest on the left is Dest's own repeated insistence that he feels comfortable on either side and that he can play both. Um, And like you said, he did just play left back for Barcelona. He did just get an assist for Barcelona while playing as a left back, um, which is, which is generally speaking, that's a pretty good thing. You like to see that. Um, And part of it was also that for a long time, no one really put their stamp on left back for the U S over the course of multiple games. I think that over this last window, that's finally happened with Anthony Robinson because he had a really, really impressive window. Um, And I was definitely the most impressed with how consistently good he was on defense um, over the course of those games. I have not been impressed with him for the U.S. in the past. I think that he took a definite step up in the September window. but for a long time, it was kind of like, oh, Anthony Robinson is is kind of getting cooked back there. Let's try Sam Vines. 
Sam Vines isn't doing great in the Gold Cup. Let's try George Bello. George Bello might have been too soon for the World Cup qualifiers. Let's go back to Anthony Robinson. So if you kind of have that carousel happening at left back, and on the meantime, in the meantime, you have multiple right back options that you trust implicitly, and then one of them can also play left back and says, I can play left back, I can do that. Then, then yeah, you'll probably play that person at left back and, and go with the more trusted players overall. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'd, I think that a lot of the concern that Dest is playing out of his natural position is overblown in my estimation. I'm not, I'm not saying that putting players out of position is good. I'm just not sure that natural positions are as much of a thing as we think they are, right? And this is going right along with what you're saying, Adam. Dest has played left back, right back, left wing, right wing throughout you know, his career. In his Ajax youth days, when we're all pouring over that footage of him playing for young Ajax and for their youth teams, he's playing everywhere, right? He's playing on both sides, and he clearly has the skill set to be able to do that in the right system. And so Greg Baralter looks at a player like that and says, I can use you to cover a weakness, right? And I can even leverage your skill set to turn you into an asset at that left back spot. So I think, I think Snaves, I, I'm right along with you on everything you're saying. I think Kaz even answers at least part of this question with his own question. It is due partially to a lack of quality on the right. I'm still not entirely sold on Anthony Robinson at left back. I agree. He did have a nice window in September. But I mean, Des can paper over at that spot and also allow some of the right back depth to play on the right. Shaq Moore, DeAndre Edlin, Reggie Cannon, Araujo's gotten some minutes under Greg Berhalter, although it looks like that ship may have sailed at this point. It, it kind of killed two birds with one stone. So that's that's a reason. The fact that he's played there dating back to his youth days is a big reason. Another reason I see is Dest and Polisic, when they're both healthy, they can give you some heat on that left side, right? We saw this against Jamaica back in March, I think, in that friendly. It was 4-1 to the U.S., yeah. Des scores that screamer right in the first half. And that starts from him being on the left side, driving forward, getting the ball on his right, I believe, and, and just banging it in from outside the box. He can do that kind of stuff. And when you have him and Christian Pulisic driving at defenses and really destabilizing them on the dribble, it's it's a nice thing, right? They're they're different players. They provide slightly different things. Christian Pulisic's a bit more vertical. Dest, I think, is a bit more horizontal. But in a perfect world, you can see that working. And I, I think I think I remember Greg Berhalter talking to Bobby Warshaw about that on the U.S. Soccer Podcast. And that's something he specifically highlighted, if I remember correctly. So that's another reason behind it. There's a whole bunch of other reasons, too, within the tactical framework of this team. But yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I'd use the word obsession to call this whole Dest at left back thing. I also don't think we're going to see it as much going forward because of Anthony Robinson. But I, I don't have a huge problem with it, or at least I don't have a huge problem with some of the initial reasoning behind it. Yeah, I don't have any, I don't have any more problems with Dest playing on the left than I do with Dest playing on the right. I think is, is what I keep coming back to because I think that the, the same, benefits and the same drawbacks from him as a player appear on both sides um, where you have somebody who is phenomenal at dribbling and can progress the ball uh, on his day, like nobody's business and really cause issues for opposing defenses coming from a deeper position. Um, and you also have somebody who tends to get a little lost in defense and sometimes is not making the best challenges, is not making the right reads on plays and can leave gaps in behind. Um, so uh, ultimately, I don't, I don't I think that's, you know, those benefits and those issues are going to be the same more or less on both sides of the field. I will say kind of to close out my thoughts on this question, at least 
Dest hasn't played very well at left back recently. We've just gone through a lot of the reasons why it kind of makes sense to put him there. It hasn't really worked a lot over the last few months, right? Dest played on the left in the Nations League final over Mexico in a kind of left back, left midfield role. Didn't really play well in that game. He also didn't very, look very good at left back against Switzerland a couple weeks before that. And then the El Salvador game, it was him and Conrad De La Fuente on that side away to El Salvador, and, and they didn't look very good either. And, and then the Canada game, the second game of the September window, Des is starting at right back, and he, I thought he looked really good, at least with the ball, before he comes off with an injury uh, right before halftime. So it has been a mixed bag and, and kind of a bad bag from Dest at left back. So in a way, I am glad that it looks like Anthony Robinson has staked his claim for that left back spot because it could mean that we see Dest really grab that right back spot and shine. We're not going to just see him at right back, but I think it's a good thing for the program. If if Robinson's got that left side down and Dest has that right side down, I can see that being a dangerous fullback pairing. Snaves, any other thoughts on this one before we chug along to our next question? Yeah, I will just defend myself before somebody comes at me on Twitter and says, Dust was clearly better as a right back against Canada than he was against Mexico and, and, and El Salvador. Um, yeah, sure, you're, you're correct. But he also only played not even a full half against Canada. Yeah, and true. in in that not full half against Canada as a right back, there was a major defensive flub that that gave Canada a very, very good attacking counterattack opportunity um, where that's just kind of misreads Alfonso Davies completely and and Canada is just off to the races. Um, obviously, his replacement in that game, DeAndre Edlin, had his own pretty bad defensive effort that led to Canada's goal, at least in part. So I'm not saying that we, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't play Serginho Dest. Don't, don't try to take all of this, you know, too, too much to heart. I know that a lot of people get a bit irate when we're talking about some of (laughs) the, the blue chip U S men's national team players at the current moment and some of their shortcomings. And I think it is fair to say that, Serginho Des has some shortcomings, whether he is playing on the left side or the right side. I can already uh, see the tweets coming. Snaves, no, I think you have defended your honor successfully in that particular (laughs) situation. Our next question is from David, and this one is just for you, Adam. For Snaves, David said, if USMNT Twitter was a song, what would it be and why? And if the USMNT was a song, what would it be and why? Adam, do your thing, man. Oh, I am so happy that this question was asked. Okay, so I'm going to start with the United States men's national team. The USMNT as a song used to be at one point in time, and ideally they would get back to this. They used to be the song 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton. Yeah. Shouts out to the legend. A team that always worked hard, that was greater than the sum of its parts, that was always up for surprising teams sheer through through a lot of hard work and a lot of cohesiveness. And I think that song encapsulates a lot of what it's about. At this current moment, I think the USMNT is um, a really um i don't i don't know how i don't i wouldn't call it a good song uh maybe a nostalgic song for for some people uh the song my own worst enemy by the band lit uh because i think that a lot of uh a lot of the u.s men's national team struggles at this point in time are self-inflicted rather than just natural uh natural conclusions of the uh, level of talent that is in the team as far as USMNT Twitter, <laughs> the Twitter, I did not come up for a song 
for American soccer Twitter. Um, but rather a famous Shakespearean passage that I think comes to bear <laughs> when I picture the masses of United States men's national team and and also United States women's national team anonymous accounts with players and pundits as, as their profile pictures and how they, they wriggle and writhe in anger over themselves and their replies to any sort of soccer opinion whatsoever when it comes to these teams. Tomorrow... And tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. Full of sound and fury, <laughs> signifying nothing. David, you've made – I think you've made Adam's week day at the very least. That was that was beautiful, Snaves. Wow. You I've been waiting for that one. Oh, I've been waiting <laughs> for that one. <laughs> I don't think there are many – I mean, actually, you know, I don't want to say this. I don't want to assume this, but I'm guessing there aren't many chances that you have to read – a Shakespearean passage on soccer podcast very often. And David just opened the door and basically shoved you through it. Those were all excellent, excellent choices, Adam. Hey, I appreciate the love and uh, I will always take the opportunity to put Shakespeare where he does not belong. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's what you've successfully done. I'm, I'm currently reading the lyrics to my own worst enemy, the song that you attributed to the current USMNT. <laughs> I think it is, it is brilliant and I cannot read some of them out loud on this particular podcast, but no, don't I think do that. If, if listeners look it up, they will wholeheartedly agree with your choice on that one. And I do like the classic nine to five US men's national team song attribution. I think it works well in, in the more the, maybe, maybe the US just needs to keep playing in Nashville. And they'll get back to that. I don't know exactly what the process looks like there, but I could not endorse your selections more, Adam. Hey, working five to nine, you've got passion and a vision because it's hustling time. Thanks, Dolly. (laughs) Thank you, Dolly. And thank you, David, for that question. One more before we take a break. This one is from Six Idiots Streaming. A little harsh, but, you know, their name, not mine. Who would you realistically like to manage the U.S. men's national team after this 2022 World Cup cycle? This would be the manager to guide us to our 2026 glory. Six Idiot Streaming kindly clarifies for us. <laughs> Adam, if we if we assume, and we don't know what's going to happen with Greg Berhalter, right? That's that's not really something I'm all that interested in discussing. But if U.S. Soccer and Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride awake from their slumber and decide after the World Cup cycle is over to hire a new manager, who do you want that to be? Because I've got a pretty clear choice and it's the obvious one for me. Yeah, sure. And I, I would imagine that I have the same choice in that uh in that that vein i i just wanted to say though first of all realistically i wanted to be greg burhalter because that means that everything went well right like like Probably. if if you are if greg burhalter is is the manager to guide us to 2026 glory that meant that the 2022 cycle all in all went pretty well like uh and and you get the benefit of you know the group that we have that is so young and there's a consistency in the core that greg has and a new coach means that quite possibly you get a new core and you are disrupting that cohesion that can build over years of time possibly for the better 
or possibly for the worse. Um, so I know that's not the question that that they're asking, but I think that's something that a lot of people are just ignoring because they have already convinced themselves that Greg yeah. is not the guy. So I, I, I want to throw that out there. Realistically, who would I like to manage the United States after this World Cup cycle? Well, realistically, Greg, because that probably means that this World Cup cycle went pretty well. Yeah. Um, if it's not Greg and things didn't go very well at all, it's hard to look past Jesse Marsh. Um, it went, all things considered, he is somebody that would obviously be a little bit more possibly inclined to take the United States job, given the fact that he is an American who is currently coaching. Um, and I think that his style would probably translate pretty well to the international stage. I think that he'd probably try to simplify the United States tactics a bit from what Burhalter is trying to do from game to game. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily an exciting answer, uh, but I think that a lot of the people that I think of when I think of who would I realistically, I would like to manage the United States men's national team. I look at Americans because those are the people that are probably more likely to take the job all things said and so i look like i look like i look at jesse marsh i i, I look at people like pellegrino Monterazzo. um those are the the names that come up and i think that most people would come up with similar names we talk a lot about player development and players moving from america and from the u.s to europe to further their careers and those are fun conversations. We've already had some of them, and I think we'll have a bit more on today's show. It's certainly down the line. One thing I'm really interested, though, in terms of soccer development in the United States is the progression of coaching in the U.S. and how coaches continue to challenge themselves and further their careers. Because it's slim pickings, right? For this conversation about realistic options, you're likely, likely, and I've got uh, one wild card option that is probably not as realistic, but I do want to talk about it after we're done with the American section of this conversation. It's likely just people of the nationality of the national team you're talking about that are in contention for a job. That's not a hard and fast rule, but that does tend to be what happens. If you're American, you're likely going to end up coaching the U.S. men's national team versus if you're if you're from another country. But there's not a lot of options here, right? Jesse Marsh is the obvious choice, and he's a choice that I think would be very exciting to see end up coaching the U.S. men's national team. But beyond that, Adam, you mentioned Pellegrino Matarazzo. He's, I mean, him and David Wagner, I guess, are, are like the only other two Americans coaching in Europe right now. David Wagner's coaching in Switzerland. And then you're looking at just a few guys in MLS, right? Brian Schmetzer is not, a, not someone who I think would... I don't know. I don't think he'd be the best fit for the national team. Peter Vermees is an option. Greg Banny is an option. Robin Frazier is an option. Jim Curtin, I guess, is an option. There are good MLS coaches, but just not a lot of guys who have been able to go and continue to elevate themselves and challenge themselves in the way that Jesse Marsh has done. And that's something I'd really like to see going forward. I think it would be an entertaining narrative in terms of like those of us that cover soccer in the United States. But I also think it's just good for the game to see more and more coaches go and, and challenge themselves moving from MLS over to Europe, moving from USL to MLS and over to Europe at higher and higher levels. There's opportunities for these people to be coaching and, and for coaching education to improve. And there's just a lot here. And I, when I'm thinking about this question and kind of the only obvious name that pops up is Jesse Marsh, I see that as a bit of a problem and something that I hope we look back in, in, in on in five or 10 years and maybe it's less of a problem. So that's, that's, that was my approach to this question. Adam, I mentioned my one oddball choice and it's Danish national team head coach Casper Hjolmund. Just because mm. I think, I think that Denmark team was so fun at the Euros and I don't, I don't really think this would happen, but they were the surprise team for me making that run all the way to the semifinals. I thought they played some really nice soccer. 
if if a coach like Casper Hillman is looking for a change of scenery at any point in the future, I think he would be an incredibly fun character and personality to have come coach the U.S. men's national team. He already has some ties to the United States. That's a bit of a pipe dream and just something that I think could be interesting, but one that's probably not especially likely. Um, Adam, any other thoughts on this coaching question before we head into a break? I think that there are uh, there's a not insignificant portion of people that are not going to be happy with whoever the United States hires unless it's Marcelo Bielsa. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I will say um, I would like Marcelo Bielsa to go to the United States because I would like to be agreed with on Twitter. <laughs> That's what this is all about. That's what uh, it's all, all right. about. <laughs> We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with our final couple of questions on today's show. This next one, Snapes, comes from Brian is it too late, Brian asks, for players like Luca De La Torre or Sebastian Soto to wade their way into the mix for the U.S. men's national team during World Cup qualifying? Or even if you see benefits from what they could offer, would it disrupt the chemistry that the squad is already developing? Adam, is it too late for LDT? Or L, well, that, that acronym escaped me. LDT. Nope, still wrong. LDLT. That's not an abbreviation we're going to rock with on this show going forward. Is it too late for Luca De La Torre or Soto or whoever, really? You can look at this in a more macro way if you'd like. Is it too late for Greg Baralter to be adding players into this group? Because I, I certainly don't think so. No, <laughs> like, like simple answer. Easy, easy peasy. No, no, absolutely not. Um, I think that it's important to have a consistency of group, but I don't think that it's 
necessarily like this group is the group that we're going to be taking to any theoretical World Cup that we might qualify for. There's always room for people to make a name for themselves, to make a case, uh, whether that's with the team or at their individual clubs. And there's always time. I mean, the 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 example that we can go back to most recently for the United States is the rise of DeAndre Edlin, who, you know, he popped up in January camp in 2014 and then made the World Cup roster and then had to play against Belgium and shut down Eden Hazard for a not insignificant part of time. I've said the phrase not insignificant several times, but I'm going to keep <laughs> doing it and I'm not going to apologize. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that it's late at all for people to be coming in for anybody to be coming in. And I think that if somebody is coming in that they have proved that they bring enough of a different skill set, uh, or at least a skill set that the United States needs that it's not going to hurt team chemistry. And I don't think that you'll run into that problem in, in any sort of way from this group of professionals at this point in time, looking at the individual cases, I think Sebastian Soto seems pretty far away from the team. Yeah. Um, he's only managed a couple of starts for uh, FC Porto's B team, uh, which is not really what you want. I think Luca De La Torre is closer, both in terms of uh, how much he is playing for his senior side and in terms of what he can bring and the value that he represents. Um, not saying that, you know, central mid is weaker than striker just saying i think that he could fit into this team pretty well uh and that he represents a skill set that isn't necessarily well represented by the u.s at the moment but for the overarching question the the whole thing no it's certainly not too late it's it's definitely not too late and i'd be shocked if we didn't see players if we didn't see new blood in this group, right? From September to October, Berhalter was asked, I think by Paul Kennedy from Soccer America, in one of the post-match press conferences from the September window, he was he was asked about the challenges that come with trying to put together a roster in September because of the European club calendar, right? Think about the guys that were missing or, or almost just not even in contention to be called up in September because they were still sorting out club situations, right? You've got Reggie Cannon, who is still kind of recovering from the Gold Cup and that whole Bovista mess is very much a mess. And you had Matthew <laughs> yeah, Hoppy, yeah. who's moving to Mallorca from Schalke. That's a big move and you obviously don't want to derail that. That's a huge step for his career moving to La Liga. Then you've got Chris Richards. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of options here. Richards is moving from Bayern Munich to Hoffenheim on loan, trying to get that situation sorted out. You have injuries as well. Yunus Musa was injured. Tim Weah was called in, but also injured. Jossi Zardes was injured. There's going to be a whole, I would wager, at least a handful of new players coming into this group. And there's reasons for that because of the club situations that I just outlined or, or injuries. There's also reasons for that because of what we saw happen in September. Scuffed just put out a great episode recently where they're talking about maybe the roster doesn't necessarily need to be bigger than the 26-man roster that Berhalter called in in September. But at least you got to build it better. So either way, whether Brawlter decides to change the roster construction or just add more players to that group, we saw what happens when you lose a bunch of players and maybe don't don't put guys in the best spots in terms of player rotation because Gio Reyna left that that or ended up with an injury from those three games. Christian Pulisic ended up with an injury. Uh, Serginho Dest ended up with that injury against Canada. Now Tyler Adams missed Leipzig's latest game against Hertha Berlin with an injury. You need depth, right? And I could see that depth coming from guys who weren't necessarily there in September. It could be this new new blood either to the program in general. That seems less likely. More than likely, I would say, is these guys coming in who, who know Greg and Greg knows them. And they have these skills that could actually help this group. 
I've got a few players, Snaves, who I think will be on this roster that weren't in September, either for club situations or because of an injury. Do you have any guys either off the top of your head that, that you think could come into this group and actually help this team? Oh, I am thrilled to see Yunus Musa back on the field for the United States. I love the way that he progresses the ball. I love the way that he receives the ball and has the ability to turn in the midfield. I am really, really excited to see him back on the field with the the kind of the first team, the first group of American players, because I think that he can be a real difference maker in the way that the U.S. attack functions uh, and their their transition game. And I'm very, very pumped to see him back with the U.S. Hopefully very, very soon. Would love to see that 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah, Musa's a huge one for me. He's finally back and healthy with Valencia. We've talked about him. We've talked about him a bit on the Total Soccer Show recently. If you scroll up through the feed, he's huge, and I, I'm a big fan of his. I think almost everybody is, even though he's playing in a bit of a weird spot for Valencia. I think he's a guy that we're going to see called in. Chris Richards is another one. Now that he is settled with Hoffenheim, he's getting starts. He's playing. I'd be very surprised if Berhalter didn't bring him in. Not entirely shocked because they haven't worked together a lot, but when you watch Chris Richards play. It's hard to ignore the talent he has and the ways that he could help this team. Another one that I've got, Tim Weah, who was injured and and was originally called in. He's back for Lille. He played twice this past week for them in France. I think he'll be with this group. One one player, Adam, though, that I saw, I think I saw you tweet about, uh, who I think will be back with this team, but maybe you don't, is Jossi Zardes. I think he's going to come into the mix, maybe take some minutes away from Ricardo Pepe now that he's back healthy with the crew. Am I am I taking crazy pills or did I see a tweet from you with some hot takes about Jesse Zardes? It was mostly a troll tweet uh, <laughs> okay. that, that then was met by people saying, hmm, let's talk about this in a measured response. And I said, well, that's not really what I was going for at all. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, no, it, it was, it was, there was somebody on, uh, American soccer Twitter, which we have already talked about in this episode. Um, somebody on American soccer Twitter was making a, a binary argument about uh, Josh Sargent versus Jesse Zardes. And I crafted the tweet. More importantly, neither of them should be called up. Expecting, hopefully, somebody to, to get real mad about it, and nobody did. So that was a little troll on my part, and it didn't pan out the way I thought it was going to. Everybody was really cool about it, and good job, I guess, to all of you, <laughs> but it's not what I wanted. Um, no, I, I don't think that, that Jossie's artist coming in is a is a stretch at all. Uh, I mean, especially given what we saw from the forward position over the last several months for the United yeah. States. Um, yeah. You have to consider bringing in Jossie's artist. You, and for that matter, you have to consider somebody like Daryl DK as well, um, who looks like he is finally healthy again. Looks like he has gotten some much needed rest after what was almost a full year, year and a half of just playing soccer without really much of a break at all. Um, and, and I think that it would be crazy not to possibly call some of those people in, change up the blood a little bit. I, I think that would, it would be absurd for Berhalter not to at least consider those options. And there's a few other names that I think fit into that category that that we could see in this group in October. Matthew Hoppy, Luca De La Torre, who we've already discussed. Some other guys as well that we don't need to go through everybody in such a granular kind of way. But yeah, we're going to see new blood. I think it makes sense. I don't think it's going to disrupt chemistry. This is an evolving group all the time, whether that's for the Gold Cup or for Nations League or for World Cup qualifying for January camp. The group changes. The WhatsApp group chat only gets bigger and bigger, folks. So that's... <laughs> and, and- 
I, I think I think one one last thing to to kind of round it out that's important to keep in mind of is is this is what we're talking about when you know you see the graphics on Twitter a lot over the last couple of years of oh these are here's a, a United States men's national team lineup with everybody's clubs and everybody's playing for Champions League teams or here's here's all the 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 U.S. players in Europe currently right now. Um, and it's like, you know, typically this group of like 11 to 15 people. And it goes back to what a lot of people have been saying. Um, this is not an original thought by me at all, but we come into World Cup qualifying and we're going to need more than 11 players. And for that matter, we're going to need more than 23 or 24 players. It takes a lot of people to qualify for all those reasons that you talked about. and for the just simple reasons of matters of form uh, because people go in and out of form. It, it, it just is what happens. Um, so, so people are going to change. There's going to be player switches and I don't think it is going to be too late for you to state your case for the United States men's national team at the world cup. If they are to make the world cup until that final roster drops. Boom. Retweet, baby. Okay, we've got one more question. This one is from Tim Richardson, who asks, how is Gianluca Busio doing in Italy? Is he helping his U.S. men's national team chances? I have watched like an absurd amount of Gianluca Busio in Italy uh, with Venezia, who are struggling in Syria a bit, although they did just get a draw yesterday, Monday, as we're recording on Tuesday. Adam, what have you seen? What have you heard? What have you read about Gianluca Busio's time in Italy? Is he climbing his way up the U.S. men's national team depth chart? Is he in a similar spot? What's the latest? You know, I like this question because these are two, they they seem to be like very similar questions, but they're really like very, very different questions that are asked here. How is Busio doing in Italy? And is he helping his, his United States men's national team chances? It, they feel like they should be the same, but they're actually very different. Um, Busio for sure is getting a lot of minutes and I think that's great. Uh, he's also having to take a lot of lessons the hard way because Venezia aren't very good. And I think it's, it seems pretty clear when I watch them play in Serie A that talent wise, they're just usually the lesser team on the field, uh, at most, at most positions. There's, a pretty clear talent gap that I see between Venezia and a lot of the teams that they're playing in Serie A. Um, so all those things, you know, all, all things being equal, it is good. Yes. That Busio is getting minutes. It is going to be difficult that he is going to be getting all this minutes when he's probably going to be in a relegation scrap all the time. Uh, similar to what a lot of people's concerns were about Josh Sargent joining Norwich. Where I think that he is helping his United States men's national team chances, and I think that he is ultimately, although it might take a while, is that you can see him already really trying to adapt. And I think particularly in that game against Torino where they did get a draw um, and he was starting as a holding midfielder, once again, where he has been getting a lot of minutes for them, I can see the points in his game where he is clearly trying to be better than what he was, even from when I saw him play for the United States in the gold cup. I see him when he's receiving the ball in the midfield. I see him checking his back shoulder all the time now and making sure that the places that he's turning and where he wants to go to are places where he is going to be safe and not possibly losing the ball, which was a little bit of an issue, especially when we had uh, that brief, brief, 
John Luca Busio, Eric Williamson midfield uh, for the United States at the Gold Cup. Ball retention was a little bit iffy. Um, I see him consciously making sure that the places where he's going are going to be a little bit safer when he's receiving the ball in the midfield. I see him try to adding. I see him trying to add more bite to his game. Um, he's still he's still small. He's he's a small player. He just is. Um, and I, he's still growing. I, I don't imagine that he will be exactly the size in the next couple of years. Um, but he seems pretty intent on not getting bullied around in the midfield, um, which isn't an easy task uh, in Serie A. And, and I, I think that all these things together, it seems to me that he is trying to quickly learn his lessons about what it takes to succeed at this level of the game. And I think that by nature of that and just getting a lot of minutes at a higher level like this, he is helping his United States men's national team chances. Does that help the United States men's national team in the short run? It might not. He might, you know, it it might be deemed that he's not there yet. Um, But I think that he certainly isn't hurting his chances either. Agreed. I don't, I don't think Busio is there yet. He's still... I, the way I would answer the, at least the first part of Tim's question, how is Busio doing in Italy? I'd say he's pretty much doing how you would expect a talented but very much still developing 19-year-old who's playing on a bad team in Serie A to be doing, right? He's getting a lot of minutes, which is great. That's phenomenal. And maybe that you actually wouldn't expect entirely. He's had some very nice moments. He's played a few different spots in midfield. Again, getting minutes, that's great. He's shown some upgraded physicality at times, which you touched on, Adam. He looks crisp on the ball at times as well. You mentioned that too. But he's also had some pretty bad moments from the first game against Udinese. He had a turnover that led to one of their goals playing as a six. He gets little brother to borrow scuff terminology a lot. He, he plays even smaller than he is, I would argue. And one thing I don't, I don't entirely see eye to eye with you, Adam, is, is with his spatial awareness. I don't think he checks his shoulder as much as he needs to. And I'd like to see him improve that and his efficiency on the ball. Just taking too many touches, doesn't receive on the half turn enough. There's a lot of, of nitpicking I can do. And I think it's important to do that with Busio. But he is developing, and that's great. And that, you know, by nature is helping his U.S. men's national team chances. The better player he becomes, the more likely he is to impact the game for the national team. I don't see him there right now, but the fact that he's played, he's gotten five starts for Venezia and is getting regular time against teams like AC Milan, who who rotated a bit in that game they had against Venezia in Serie A earlier this season. But he's playing against really quality teams, and he is getting better, and the development is pretty clear, even if he's still a very flawed and imperfect player. That's not breaking news. He's 19. So none of that stuff is super shocking to me. I think I think he's got a lot of tools in his bag and a lot of tools that still needed to be added to his bag, honestly. I, I guess I guess when I said that, you know, he is checking his shoulder more. I I I, I don't think that he's necessarily completely eradicated that that sure, weakness sure. in his game. Of course. Um, but I, I think I have noticed an improvement from him in that yeah. area is, is I guess what I was trying to say in that particular area of the game. Um, um, but yeah, I, I, I mostly think that when we're talking about, is he helping his United States men's national team chances? And that question, I might be reading into it, Tim. So don't, if, if this is wrong, feel free to just completely ignore this. That question feels like it, it has a note of immediacy in it mm. to me. Um, and ultimately when we're talking about Busio and the position that he plays, that's a position that's ultimately like this comes down to a coach having a lot of trust in this player. Um, 
because, you know, being that kind of shield for the defense and being in, in, you know, a holding midfielder, that's a big role. We have arguably the, the person who had their best performance for the United States over the course of three games in the last set of World Cup qualifiers was Tyler Adams playing mostly that role. Um, so, you know, this is something that Busio is going to have to learn and it's going to take time. And I don't think that it's going to happen as quickly as we want it to happen. But I also don't think that we are, we should be worried necessarily about him because I think that I see the signs that it is happening. It's going to be a process, but it's happening. And that goes back to our discussion almost at the beginning of this show about Pepe, right? It's going to take time. And that's, that's okay. Rushing, rushing these things along is, number one, I think unnecessary. It's also unhealthy and just not realistic and, and unproductive. So it's go- I'm not saying that Tim is doing that, by the way. I think these are very good questions, Tim, and it gave me an excuse to go good back job, to Tim. and watch, watch a bunch of Jean-Luc Abusio. Not, I mean, I've done some of that already, but doing way more of that than I, that I had planned to. So it gives us an excuse to talk about that stuff, but it's going to be a process, right? Trust the process. 76ers reference that probably only about eight people got. Adam, we've talked about Busio. Basketball. We've <laughs> you got it. You get it, Adam. We talked about Busio. We talked about Pepe. Uh, you read us some Shakespeare. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Where can people find you on Twitter? Um, plug, plug whatever you need to. Plug whatever you can before we dip out of here. Absolutely. Um, I'm at Snaves on Twitter, S-N-A-V-E-S, where I post most of the things that I'm working on. Um, but if you're interested in any other projects that I'm doing, I do also have a podcast that I run with my brother, Drew. Uh, it's called Deadball Brothers. It's a podcast where we talk about weird or obscure or funny soccer history. So uh, we, we, we dive into plenty of, of just weird stories, whether that is um, the delinquent mascots of England in the late nineties. Uh, we had, uh, we, we just recently did a story on um, Sheriff Tiraspol and their origins as this kind of weirdo, frozen soviet nation state that doesn't technically exist which is where they they are located um we we do a bunch of of weird and we try to keep it fun things so if you're interested in that it is called deadball brothers on social medias we're at deadball pod everywhere and that at the moment is all i have to plug follow snaves on twitter check out deadball brothers adam one more time thanks for coming on thanks for having me listeners thank you all so much for listening and the total soccer show will be back again very 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 soon 